From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Hope that you are doing very, very well out there and are enjoying one day in Joburg that it doesn't seem to be raining. Uh, and uh, I hope that if you have kids that are going to school, you are enjoying, I think it is your last week or sort of semi-last week. They are going back, I think, in the middle of this week. So uh, I hope all those books are covered and you've got all the pants and the pencils and everything else that you need for the little ease to enjoy their time back in their educational institutions and this as you know is a very educational institution our show that we do every Monday morning and as usual we've got a jam-packed lineup for you so what is it that you can expect well later on we are going to be delving a little bit into the case at the Hague and seeing uh, how it went and what we are likely to see from here that is one element also we were talking about David Teeger and what is it that we can do as a community around that particular issue and uh, as usual be looking at some tech stuff as well but before we get to that I am very excited to have in studio a very special guest uh, and uh, someone who actually given that we would be talking about the issue of genocide later at The Hague really knows what the issue of genocide is all about. His name is uh, Muhammad Abu, Abu Bakr and he is from the African Middle East Leadership Project and he has an absolutely fascinating story about the issue of genocide because he grew up in, the, in, in Sudan and uh, was an integral part of the politics of, of, of getting out to the rest of the world what was going on in that country. So we're going to be talking to him and finding out about his journey because he has an, a, a remarkable story. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us on Chai FM. Thank you, Benji, for having me. It's a, a real, real pleasure. So maybe just give us a little back, bit of background. You are from Sudan. Born uh, and raised. Born and raised. For I, I suspect most of us I- listening to this uh, 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 programming, myself included, Sudan may as well be Mars. Uh, it's, so, it's so far away, even though it's on our continent. But maybe just start off by giving us a bit of a sense of what, what Sudan is like. What part of the country are you from? What is it like to grow up in, in, in a country like that? Um, growing up in Sudan was quite uh, an interesting experience. I was born at an interesting time when um, Sudan had just turned into um, an Islamist di- dictatorship. Not a friendly place to grow up. However, I grew up in a very um, open house where I really uh, didn't feel the oppression of the system uh, at home, at least. Um, of course, that was uh, not the experience of women experience in Sudan that specifically targeted them or the Christians who got you know a holy war launched against them in the south or um, the African indigenous groups in Darfur and elsewhere who have literally faced genocide. So, so give us a sense then about uh, your heritage in terms of, of the country, because the way you're talking already, you know, as soon as you get into, uh, into Sudan, you start talking about Darfur, which is one side, and the south. And so, so give us a bit of a sense about the geography and the different kinds of people that actually, that actually live there and where you sort of fitted into that whole category. Yes. Well, Sudan, until 2011, was the largest African country. So naturally, it had 
more than 50 uh, spoken indigenous languages in the country. So a lot of tribes that for, for the greatest part of Sudan history lived quite in, in, in a lot of harmony and uh, with very little conflict. Myself, I am a Nubian, so I come from the Nubian culture that used to occupy the um, regions of southern Egypt um, and, and northern Sudan um, and the ancient um, kingdom of Kush. Um, that those of you who read the Bible, read the Bible may know <laughs> about. And um, yeah, I mean, after the uh, decolonization and the Sykes-Picot Sykes um, uh, agreement, uh, it got divided into two countries um, and uh, the Nubian kingdom, you know, uh, was split between Egypt and Sudan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's, where you, that's where you come from and that's where you uh, fit within the... It sounds like a, a very... Uh, a kaleidoscopic uh, uh, country and an absolutely fascinating history, as you say, going right back to the Bible uh, and, and an interesting relationship with Egypt as well. We often think of the, the pharaohs as being people that were Egyptian, but, but from my understanding is that the Nubian kingdoms were very important in the development of Egypt absolutely. in that way. Um, like the, the, the Egyptian empire like got a lot of the historical coverage, uh, but as far as the Egyptian you know, um, empire existed, there was their rival, the Nubian Empire, on the other side, the Kush uh, kingdoms. And um, they had a very interesting history that spans over 7,000 years, um, mostly with a lot of competition mm -hmm. and a lot of animosity, but also with a lot of, you know, um, a lot of periods of shared... Um, shared uh, engagement. Engagement, yes. Oh, amazing. So, so let's get into your story a little bit. Um, obviously, as you say, Darfur starts to have, once this uh, dictatorship takes over, there's uh, quite an, uh, it becomes quite un difficult for, for the minorities that, that live in the country. Uh, and, and you sort of got, I don't know, almost unintentionally sucked up into all of that. Explain to us how you, you, you got in, particularly the issue of, of Darfur, which Darfur. is where you got. Yes, you know, uh, well, I'm, you know, it might, might be helpful to the listener mm -hmm. to know that I'm 35 today, um, and uh, that journey started in 2003 when I was literally 14 years old. Okay. Um, and that uh, that started with a visit um, to the region of Darfur. After hearing um, that was April 2003, we heard a lot of rumors in the weeks leading up to that um, expedition about tribal violence um, in Darfur that is leading to a mass famine and potentially genocide. Something that, you know, worried a lot of human rights activist community that I was already active with at that point. But um, what led to me uh, leading that expedition is my familiarity with the region of Darfur, something that I, you know, a region that I am extremely aware of and visited a lot before when it was peaceful. Um, and you know, I got to, I managed to convince, you know, all these adults to actually follow me um, and, you know, trust my leadership to take them there and see actually what happening, what's happening and document what is, uh, what is going on there. Um, but what we arrived to was far, far worse than anything described or rumored. Um, there wasn't just a tribal conflict, there was a campaign of extermination of local African indigenous groups living in Darfur that was very well funded uh, almost to um, an industrial level uh, of uh, intentional campaign to kill and exterminate every last um, uh, member of certain groups. Um, the group leading that 
that effort on behalf of the government of Sudan is a militia called the Jinjaweed militia, um, which was headed by um, someone who's now, um, you know, leading the current war in Darfur, uh, sorry, in Sudan, uh, General um, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalu. And that uh, militia effectively killed more than 100,000 by the time we arrived. So within a couple of, you know, few weeks, they had already surpassed um, some of their goals. That number. Absolutely uh, horrifying and, and fascinating. We're talking to Mohammed Abu Bakr today uh, on 101.9 Chai FM, uh, and uh, we're finding out about his uh, activism in the issue of uh, Darfur and his human rights activism. And uh, yeah, keep chatting and listening. We, you, you are welcome to, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, 34519 is the SMS line. And, uh, and uh, we will, uh, yeah, we'll, we will be, we'll be happy to take any of your calls. I'm Benji Shulman. This is 101.9 IFM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. <clears throat> 101.9 Chai FM. Talking today to Muhammad Abu Bakr. He is from the African Middle East Leadership Project. And uh, just before the break, we were getting into his uh, involvement as uh, as an activist to deal with the, the issue of of Darfur and and what he saw when 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 he got to the thing, to the to the place and 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 already seen that the scale of destruction has has started. So. So what was your reaction then and your group's reaction, Mohammed, once you realized what actually was going on? It was obviously the most devastating experience of my life to date. I've been through in many war zones since, and, and I'm sure I'm going to be in many other war zones after, but I have never seen anything like that outside of doc, you know, documentaries about the Holocaust. That was the only thing I could think of in that moment, arriving to mass graves of burned bodies and burned cattle and villages and literally looking at at least five languages that have lost every speaker uh, of them um, uh, dead in front of me and uh, the smell um, still lingers with me to, the, to this day and um, yeah genocide is obviously a word I don't take very lightly it's um, I've been very first hand involved in Collection that took years of uh, evidence uh, of to to make the case for that for genocide. It was not an easy feat. It's not something that I throw lightly. And Sudan, um, yeah, Sudan genocide against the um, the indigenous people of Darfur is um, was a turning point in my life. I remember collapsing for maybe 18 hours of continuous crying before I could gather myself up uh, to to make uh, next move and next decisions. And those decisions were that I would like to stay, uh, not go back home, and send the team home to mobilize more resources, more people, more volunteers. And um, by the end of that week, I was managing more than 1,500 doctors and nurses and social workers and just common people who want to come and give a hand. It was quite inspirational um, seeing people of Sudan coming to the aid of people of Sudan, so at least that genocidal intention is not a, might be, uh, might be government-led, but at least 
uh, people do not subscribe to that. And um, I mean, did you did they have capacity? I mean, Sudan as a country is obviously very poor. It, ha- it doesn't have a lot of resources to suddenly gather all of that up to to now move to a, a war zone. Must have been extremely difficult. It was, and uh, and you have to add also know a layer of complexity that Sudan was c- extremely isolated uh, due to sanctions. Mm. So um, it was really hard to get any resources outside in, and at that time there was no UN. No international aid organization of any kind, so it was all locals, um, you know, chipping in what they can, and it was enough to build the very first field hospital ever um, in the in the conflict zone, as well as the first shelter and the first um, um, real real uh, aid operation in the ground to start helping people recover. Now you're 14 doing all of this. Yeah. Uh, who, who did you have to help you or support you? Because when you're 14, you can make stupid decisions because you just don't I mean, know. I couldn't think of a stupider decision than to <laughs> deploy myself to a war zone. But um, no, I mean, like I had really uh, good mentorship of uh, you know ex- more experienced activists who have been in the field for much longer. Definitely something that saved my life um, more than one times. Them passing the lessons to me. And it's something that is core to the mission of the organization I run currently, mm. which is about to pass experiences of, you know, of those who went through it so the next generation doesn't have to go through it. So instead of having to learn on the job, we teach activists to navigate these dangerous situations as, um, you know, as part of our educational uh, uh, operation. So, so give us a bit of a sense of that. I mean... My understanding of the Janjaweed is that they weren't people who were light about anything that they did. So how did you avoid having the government <laughs> disrupt your operations? Or I did not avoid it. I confronted yeah. that over and over and over and many, many times. Yeah. And it was extremely dangerous operating where we, uh, where we were operating. And especially for actual Sudanese nationals who may be perceived as 13, from 13 ethnic groups that mm. can get targeted by multiple um, people with animosity. So um, it wasn't without a lot of risk, but it also required a lot of diplomacy, mm-hmm. including with the very Janjaweed militia, um, as well as local tribes that we are trying to help. And um, I learned a lot in that experience. And it taught me that I don't want to do anything else with my life. At the age of 14, I knew exactly what I want to do. Um, I'm an engineer by training, but I never really worked as an engineer. Um, but uh, I knew from that point on that I will never leave the human rights um, space. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So once you, once you had, uh, had, had gotten this off and you had started getting some support, what, what was the next, uh, the next phase that, uh, that, that you started to start highlighting? Because certainly I think people nearly 15 years ago would remember the Darfur campaign, became a huge international issue. So how did you manage to get it out onto the agenda of the international community? I mean, it took a lot of trials and errors, a lot of, you know, uh, trying to grab attention of the world that was busy with so many other things at the time, you know. Um, Iraq uh, was just starting, like a lot of things were happening. So naturally getting attention was nearly impossible. But especially impossible because there is very real racism of coverage when it comes to African conflicts, mm-hmm. um, which is not, not an imagined thing. So getting allies um, mobilized abroad was just an operation of, you know, let's throw in all direction and see what sticks. Um, and uh, the Save Darfur movement, uh, which was actually largely, 
Jewish. Um, there was a lot of Jewish involvement in that, which is something that I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and um, yeah, and finally got, got the eyes of the right celebrities to say the right things at the right time that got um, the focus on Sudan enough to actually stop the atrocities and the subsequent um, legal actions taken against uh, the government of Sudan that eventually actually stopped the, the hostilities. Yeah, cause I was, was going to ask that because obviously people always wonder about these international campaigns and are they effective and what does their voice really mean? Right. And, and it sounds to me like from what you're saying is absolutely crucial that people do raise their voices in, in these sorts of instances. Absolutely. And to and more than, more important than to raise their voice, to voice it, to raise their voice correctly. Mm-hmm. Because I remember the first initial phase of trying to get attention. Um, uh, of the world and you know the you know like supporters carried out the thing uh, they understood that it's a muslim um you know non-muslim conflict and right. they hyped it up as that as like no like it took us time to de-escalate it from that it's like this is not what is going on uh then they took it as an arab versus like no this is a government trying to exterminate entire population mm-hmm. get it through your head and you know uh, yeah like good intentions don't matter uh, if you carry the wrong message that brings the wrong consequences um, right. so we, we we were very vigilant about keeping uh, message Sudanese as much as possible therefore led as Darfurians led as much as possible um, and not let it get siloed by Other the wrong kind of issues. Yeah. yes so, so tell us then a little bit about when when the sort of campaign was over, you said you you gone into international uh, rights work. So so where did you go from there? Sorry, um, can you repeat? N- it? Yeah, so I mean, there's the the Darfur campaign was right. was one thing that I mean right. that was where you got started. But but you've done a lot else else there, and you're not in D- Sudan anymore. Right. So 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 what did you you said you <laughs> started to s- decide to study engineering? Where, where did you go after after the after the campaign? Right. Um, no. So the campaign is something like I've done. I've done that organization for six years after. Um, okay. And it was something that I've done part time for the, because I'm, you know, still going to college and all <laughs> and everything. So I went to I went to college at fifteen. So a year into it, I, I, I embarked on my college journey. I did my degree from uh, the American University in Cairo after, after starting it in the Sudan, uh, Sudan University. Um, and yeah, and I've been one foot in education, the other foot in, uh, in my human rights work uh, for the next 10 years um, until I finished all my, the degrees I needed to get. Yeah, and I started getting involved um, um, in more regional stuff, actually, right during that, for I started to get, you know, I realized the importance of like linking up um, uh, the different uh, uh, with the, with the different parts of the human rights community across Africa, and yeah, that dragged me into a lot of work uh, around the region of uh, surrounding Sudan, but also north up north, including in Israel and Palestine something that I took interest in academically initially at two th- in 2008, um, but very, very quickly turned very um, personal for me um, as, yeah, that conflict does have that tendency to suck a lot of people in. Um, most of the time, um, you know, you know, it's intention aside, it's not a helpful, in, you know, helpful uh, involvement. Mm-hmm. So the lessons I carried from Darfur is 
you know, to, if you're going to get involved, try to remain as helpful as possible and don't take up too much space. Now, that, I mean, that, that's a very interesting insight you have there. And you know, obviously what's going on at the moment is absolutely awful. Uh, but you, you, you took quite a proactive approach in terms of actually trying to promote a peaceful uh, engagement there, uh, in, 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 in that part of the process. That's, that was your kind of contribution, if you like. So just give us a little bit of an uh, 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 insight in that. And, and the, the, the kind of, I think, consequence that most people wouldn't have had for having uh, engaged in that kind of work because uh, being Sudanese, that turned out to be quite a, a serious problem. Right. No, I mean, like, I'm in the region of the conflict of Israel-Palestine, yet I really, um, the more I spend time researching, the, the, the more I realize how little I know mm -hmm. about the complexity of the whole thing. In the beginning, it was very easy, simple, you know, black and white issue. The more I got to know people, the more I got to talk to people on both sides of the green line in Gaza. I traveled to Gaza in 2009, right after the war, um, interviewed a lot of people about, you know, about their, um, you know, their daily life, their experience, their relationship with the uh, ruling uh, Hamas um, uh, militant group. And um, the more I talk to people, the less I, uh, the, the more I re realize how little I actually know. So uh, naturally, I spent a few years doing that, just that. Uh, but in 2011, you know, I joined a very hopeful movement called Yalla Young Leaders. It was just... Uh, the brainchild of uh, Ambassador Uri Savir, who was the chief negotiator of Oslo on behalf of Israel, uh, and who headed the um, Paris Center for Peace at the time, who were looking to find creative ways to engage young Israelis, young Palestinians with their peers across many regions, because he was so inspired by, in 2011, the Arab Spring and, and the spirit of uh, yeah, the zeitgeist of the time. So. What started with like just a bunch of uh, Israeli and, and Palestinian friends uh, grew very quickly into a movement that um, had more than one million members sure. from across North Africa and the Middle East, from every Arab country, despite the fact that, again, 2011, long before Abrahamic Accords or, yeah, uh, this was for a lot of people, including myself, very illegal thing to engage in uh, due to the um, 1967 uh, anti-normalization laws that were put in place but people did, young people did it anyway and it really inspired me that you know maybe there is another way like we're not doomed to have this conflict there forever so I mean it's interesting uh, I want to talk about the treason in a second but people tend to um, <coughs> be cynical about interfaith engagement, into young people engagement, uh, what is the point? Like, does it really make a difference? And I'm interested in your perspective. If we had a million people in, in, in 2011 uh, that were doing this, do you think that that helped contribute to something like the Abraham Accords? Uh, and, and those networks, how do they survive now when you have this horrific uh, thing going on? Is it, that, that, does it just dissipate and mean nothing? Or, does it, or is it just enough to, to hang on uh, and keep some sort of communication channels open? I mean, I really think breaking that taboo of talking was a big, big deal at the time. It's something that made a lot of states in the region very, very nervous, and it showed, including my own state, that was has overreacted, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but it did make them nervous because we were really shaking an unchangeable status quo mm. that they always took for granted. And um, 
we were suddenly taken back, uh, you know, that, that agency from them. Um, and I just look at the people, CVs of people involved in Abrahamic Accord space or in the, you know, in, in the top level. And I just, you go further back enough, you will always see two names, Muslim Yush Conference and the Yalla Young Leaders. Go back enough, or Seeds of Peace, like it's mm. one of these three organizations that facilitated something that was considered, you know, was taken with a lot of cynicism from the public at the time until it got really serious. Mm. Um, and I really think it was a very worthwhile investment uh, of my time uh, in a generation that is open to more options than, than the uh, zero-sum ones that, you know, that ha we have been fed all our lives. Absolutely. So let's talk about the, the very specific consequences. When you talk about the 67 anti-normalization rules, of course, Khartoum was the, the ground zero of yes. uh, the three no's, right? The yeah. no recognition. No. And I'm understanding from you that, that from that, there was actually specific legal instruments that were put in place in the country for, to, to back up those resolutions. Right. I mean, there was a law that was activated back then, right there and then, that was never used in the history of Sudan because nobody dared to actually, you know, engage with, Israel, with Israelis directly. And um, that law was never used until I came around, I think. And, um, and it was used the first time in 2015. Um, and I learned about it as, you know, as I was doing my, you know, um, the annual Muslim Jewish Conference, the organization I just mentioned, but I also co-chair. Um, and um, yeah, I learned about it when I was in Germany that the government had filed treason um, uh, charges based on that law. To be clear, like they don't really, the Bashir government didn't really care about me talking to Israelis, but they just found a convenient law to use. Sure. They really were annoyed mostly by Your my human stuff. rights work. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, that was an interesting uh, <laughs> complication for my life, um, but one that I that ultimately lead, led to me actually uh, making some pivotal decisions that led to me be even more effective uh, in battling the the Bashir regime and being better at my uh, mission, uh, my human rights mission. I mean, you now live in the states. Do you? I do. Are you able to go back to Sudan? Now? I am. I mean, I have. Well, now it's probably not a good idea. Right. To go. Okay. Right. The second. Fine. Yes. <laughs> but I was in Sudan in 2020. Okay. Uh, charges have been dropped officially uh, when Al Bashir government was overthrown in 2019 by the popular, peaceful popular uprising um, that um, you know was largely led by women, mm -hmm. um, and um, and yeah, that that change uh, allowed me to actually finally go back to Sudan and even receive a hero welcome, which is a very nice way. <laughs> it felt like a redemption uh, a little bit. Amazing. So let's talk about your organization for a bit. What does it actually do that you run from, from Washington? Uh, and and, and you, you've kind of given us a bit of a sense of it. Right. I mean, for an organization that is only, what, six, not even seven years old, we have run in a lot of, a big range of programs. So we have our educational arm uh, does two distinct things. One is uh, running trainings um, for activists. Again, remember what I said earlier about making sure activists are safe. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a range of uh, trainings that are directed at that uh, group of, uh, of, of young people in Africa and the Middle East in 32, sorry, 35 countries now in Africa and the Middle East. But we also have programs that are aimed at 
um, those who are about to transition to leadership position, uh, including those who are seeking to join diplomatic missions in Geneva and elsewhere, in the Human Rights Council and elsewhere. And we intend to fill critical gaps in knowledge that I believe personally would make a world of difference, including Holocaust education program that is meant to, again, I talked to folks in Geneva uh, in the Human Rights Council who, you know, were disturbed by the anti-Semitism in there. And over and over, something resonated with me. They said, like, these guys are not actually anti-Semitic, but they seem to have a huge gap in knowledge on on what led to the current uh, um, uh, thing. And something I took to, to heart and built a program that is intended to do exactly that, fill those gaps in knowledge, but also do it in a way that an African and a Middle Eastern would actually relate relate to because uh, that is one of the core problems I realized about, you know, Holocaust education globally. It's meant for Europeans for the most part. Even when translated, it loses that, you know, um, yeah. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM talking to Mohammed Abubakar today from the uh, African Middle East uh, leadership project and uh, you are listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Now, Hamid, I want to get into some other uh, topics with you uh, f- for the moment. Maybe uh, something, some stuff more contemporary. I see that you're uh, wearing a, um, a, a bring them home uh, dog tag uh, to do with the hostages, which obviously is still now 101 days that they've been taken. And, and I guess I'd be interested in getting your, your perspective because I think that if you're from the Jewish community, sometimes people will look at the human rights space certain, uh, with a certain amount of skepticism maybe, which is unfortunate when you're talking about the idea of human rights. Uh, we saw our government this week, you know, you're talking about genocide at The Hague, which makes us as South Africans quite uncomfortable. I'm happy to tell you that. And, and I'm just interested as someone who very genuinely is in the human rights space, but clearly understands something about what's going on in the Middle East from, from a, a very personal perspective and because you've actually gone and spoken to clearly all sides. What is your perspective about where the human rights community is sitting on this issue uh, and, and, and what is going on with it at the moment? It's involvement of the human rights community in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, I mean, it's extremely evident now, but mm-hmm. it has always been characterized with a lot of um, accidental anti-Semitism, right? Accidental white saviorism, and um, and yeah, and a lot of taking of agency at, or denying of agency of both parties, uh, but especially Palestinians, mm-hmm. uh, something that I've always found very disturbing. Um, and of, for a long time, I butted heads with our partners in the human rights community. Um, and um, and I, I say that without any distinction between the organizations. Everybody's guilty of, almost, almost everybody's guilty of the same. Um, and um, I absolutely understand the skepticism and um, I actually, the only thing I differ about is knowing, uh, what is, is the belief whether or not they are inherently unchangeable. Right. Because I believe it is changeable. There is a lot of, again, gaps in knowledge uh, for a lot of the people involved in that space. By filling them and complicating the narratives a little bit, 
their language tend to change significantly because inherently they come from a good place. Mm -hmm. They're it's just they're not people that are out to do damage. Exactly, they are out to you know for to help, to help and be helpful. Uh, they just don't know how damaging they can be sometimes, um, accidentally. So, so for people, young people, maybe who are listening, or or, or or others who who are looking around at the world and and and, and seeing problems and, and don't know what to do, what would be your your first suggestion? Someone who sees something and says, mm, "This is wrong," and I don't know how to, to handle. Right. Well, it boils down to me to being a good ally, be, be a good ally, be, be, whether you support this side or that side or a different, complete outcome, dif completely different outcome. Be a good, you know, be a good advocate. A, don't take a lot of space and agency of the people you advocate on their behalf. That is, uh, you know, a core uh, issue, especially with Israel-Palestine. Evangelicals want to make it about themselves. The Muslims want to make it about themselves. The human rights community want to make it about, you know, a, a chance to atone for white guilt. This is not. It's about Israelis and Palestinians. You know, give them the front seat, uh, please. Um, but does it mean that you cannot be a good ally supporting and amplifying their, their hopes and needs or be an advocate of a position that, is, that may be different from the status quo but in a good way mm -hmm. um, that is rooted in peaceful coexistence because at the end of the day, nobody's going anywhere. Yes. Not Palestinians, not Israelis. Um, and they have to somehow share that very tiny piece of land that is full, full, full of a lot of problems, but also a lot of good things and beautiful things. Well, I mean, I think broader than that, I'd be interested almost more in your, you know, the, the, the Muslim Jewish council work that you do, that sort of interfaith work. I mean, we, we have a significant Muslim population in our country. Uh, have you had many South Africans who have come on the program? Yes. In fact, we have a lot of, um, a lot of South Africans who are part of our program. And... A lot of Muslim Jewish friendships that you know that uh, spur out of out of that uh, sharing of one space, mm -hmm. and um, it's sad for me to admit it, but it's usually for a lot of the people was the first time they ever had um, uh, a friend from the other side for each, and it's uh, it's you know it just tells me that we need to spend more time, more resources, making this facilitating that kind of friendship because take the policy disagreements. We face the same problem as Muslim and Jewish community. We mm -hmm. face very similar brand of discriminations. Um, Nazis would, you know, would eliminate us both. And um, we have a lot of pride in tradition that is not understood by the larger majority. And, um, and I wish uh, we would join forces in keeping each other safe more. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a very, very powerful message. So, so people that would like to see your work, like to to see what you what you're in, engaged in, how can they uh, how can they find out? To follow you are very active on social media organizations. Yeah, I mean, there is always the main website, mm -hmm. mlproject.org. A M E L project.org um, is our main website. From there, you can find you know your way around our different programs and our different platforms. Okay, so that's the best way to uh, that's the best way to find out and, and, and get a sense of it. Mohammed, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you for the work that you've been doing. And uh, keep it up. We we really appreciate it as the Jewish community, as an African uh, community. Uh, it's it just really is important. So thank you so much, and thank you for for joining us from from the states. Thank you so much, Benji. 
There we go. Talking to Mohammed Abu Bakr. He is from the African Middle East Leadership Project, and you can go check them out uh, on the web uh, and see the work that they're doing to transition leaders from activism to effective leadership in more formal structures. I am Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 Kai FM.